Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Apple Store San Francisco. We're glad you could join us. Without any further ado, Nathan Blacharzik from Airbnb and Josh Hellman from the Greylock Partners. Thank you all for coming today. Um, you know, it's great. We're really lucky to have Nate Sargent from Airbnb, who's going to really just help us kind of understand the entre entrepreneurial journey and really kind of the story of sort of how Airbnb started with three guys and a couple of empty beds and really became kind of this, you know, large company today. I, I thought it'd be fun, Nate, if you could start just kind of help us understand the full scope of sort of where Airbnb is today as a company. Yeah, sure. Um, so the scale is ever growing, but the, uh, the latest figures are that we have 600,000 properties around the world. Um, the majority of these properties are people renting their primary homes. Um, sometimes they're renting an extra bedroom. Sometimes they're renting the entire place. Uh, every single night we have over 150,000 guests staying in other people's homes. Uh, and we're in about 192 countries, so we're pretty much everywhere. Um, and we're the leader uh, of, of this model. That's great. And, and how does this compare against like actual hotel chains? Well, it depends how you look at it. So uh, if you look at it by number of rooms, it's starting to get comparable. I mean, I think some of the largest chains have about 600, 700,000 rooms. Um, but of course, our occupancy is actually much lower. Mm -hmm. So in terms of number of guests per night, uh, we have quite a ways to go. Got it. That's still amazing to think it's, it's almost as big as the the largest number of hotel chains. I'll bet you never imagined this kind of company and scale and scope when, when you first started. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first started Airbnb and what you guys were even thinking about? Yeah, it's certainly modest, uh, modest beginnings. Uh, so what happened was uh, I'm originally from Boston and I moved out here to work at another startup company. Uh, and when I came out here, kind of spur of the moment, I needed a place to live. And through Craigslist, I found Joe Gebbia, who's one of our co-founders. So we were roommates long before there was a company. Uh, and we lived together for about five or so months, and then the rent on our apartment was increased. Uh, and I decided to move out, as did another roommate. And that's when Brian Chesky, our other co-founder, decided to move in. Now, Joe and Brian knew each other from RISD. Uh, so Brian came out from LA, moved in. Uh, he quit his job to do so. Upon arrival, though, he realized how much the rent was. Uh, and the fact that he no longer had a job, and, and now the two of them didn't have enough money to pay the rent, yet they wanted to stay in this apartment. And so this is really when the story begins. Uh, they decided to rent out uh, the extra bedroom in the apartment. Uh, there was no bed in that bedroom, but Joe had some air beds. Uh, he set them up. Instead of calling it a bed and breakfast, they called it an air bed and breakfast. And they did this specifically for a design conference um, that was coming to town, uh, IDSA really big international design conference. They saw that all the hotels were sold out for this event. They got the idea that maybe they could make some extra money this one weekend. So that's what they did. They hosted three designers. They made about $1,000. They all went to the conference together. They showed these folks around the city. It was just a great time for all, and they made some money. But it was really just a one weekend thing. They basically had put up a WordPress blog to promote this. Uh, and then a couple months go by, and it wasn't really until the end of 2007 that the three of us, I was just about to quit my job, the three of us were getting together thinking, we want to start a company together. We really had a lot of respect for one another. And um, 
we worked through a lot of ideas, actually. It wasn't obvious that we should do this. I mean, despite having had this experience and despite looking back and this story sounding so wonderful, <laughs> like it wasn't obvious that this was a, an ongoing business. But we, we did reflect on that experience and we said, you know, there must be other people in other situations where we could do the same thing. Well, well let's pause there for a second. I think it's important to kind of capture this part of the entrepreneurial journey where you guys decide you're just gonna start a company together. And like, before you even get to the specific idea, could you talk a little bit about what was going on in your mind and the three of you to say, it's time to start a company. I'm gonna quit my job. You know, they might have been in or out of work and, and what you were hoping to, to do. Yeah, I think the most important thing is even less the idea and who you do it with. I mean, <laughs> your partners are so important. I like to say it's like a professional marriage. And if that professional marriage ever breaks up, uh, your company is more or less over, especially if it's a young company. It was really important to me who I was going to work with, as it was for them. Now, because Joe and I had lived together, we had a good sense of each other. Uh, and one of the things I noticed about him was on the weekends, uh, you know, despite us having very demanding jobs, we were all working on our side projects at night and on the weekends. I saw the work ethic that he had, um, and that was really important to me. Um, also, I saw that he had complementary skills to me. I'm, I'm the engineer. He was the designer. We said, wow, if you put these two things together, we could do a lot. So that was kind of the thesis for us working together. Um, but it was very unclear what we should work on. And we worked through a number of ideas um, before we were convinced that maybe this one was uh, worth pursuing. And what were some of your favorite rejected ideas pre-Airbnb? <laughs> so we focused a lot on uh, a roommate finding service for a while. Um, there was something else now that I can't even remember. But you know, th these were thing ideas that we worked through for literally you know, one or two weeks at a time and then rejected. As you got to this, this idea that you'd have this conference and you'd wait, it's actually not that hard to rent out some extra rooms in our thing, kind of how did you start formulating this into a company and sort of a website you were gonna go and build? You know, it's, it's funny, uh, so there's, there's three of us obviously and uh, Joan Brian are designers, I'm the engineer, so, so my role is always to like scope things down <laughs> as the one who actually has to build it. Um, so you know, I remember the original vision for what we wanted to do actually sounds a lot like it is today. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, whoa, you know, like we're, we're a small team here and I'm only one person. Uh, so we came up with the idea of air bed and breakfast light. Um, and it was basically something that I could build in three weeks. Uh, so it was really scoped down. It was really just a classified site with a, a bunch of events and people putting up uh, profiles in association with those events. And then you would make a phone call if you were interested. And you, no e-commerce, no reviews or anything. So that's something we built in three weeks and launched. Um, it, didn't go that far, really. I mean, we launched it at South by Southwest, um, but we learned a lot through that experience, and it was from there that our vision expanded. So the original vision um, that we started out on was basically, let's recreate this thing we just did, um, but on a repeatable basis. And so it was really um, extra bedrooms for conferences. And we thought conferences were important to build trust. Like, who would let someone else into their home unless they understood why? We thought the conference was a good, good excuse why people would recognize that. What it evolved into a few months later after we struggled um, after South by Southwest was why don't we make it just as easy to book someone's home as a hotel. Um, it no longer has to be about events or conferences. I mean, if it is, that's fine. But regardless of your reason, if you're going to London, you can now search, find something, and book it. Uh, and book it means pay through the website um, and get a confirmed itinerary. Um, that was our new bigger vision um, after a few months in. But it's not necessarily where we started. As you were sort of evolving that vision, how did you go out 
and sort of really create the supply and, and even the demand, right? Because like to build a marketplace is a very hard matching of supply and demand. And so what kinds of things were you trying to do in order to, to build those up? So this new vision that we had um, to basically replicate the booking process for a hotel, mm -hmm. um, but for people's homes, that was a bigger vision. It was more work. At this time, it took three months to build. Um, and we basically started over to do that. Um, so that was our, our first real launch, I would say. And that's the, what you see today is the evolution of that. So we launched it in August of 2008. Um, we launched it at the Democratic National Convention. Again, a big event where we knew there was going to be a shortage of housing uh, and a demand for alternatives. We launched a couple weeks before the event. We were actually able to get 800 properties onto our site. Oh, wow. uh, there turns out were a lot of locals who were looking to get out of town. They recognized that this was an opportunity to make some extra money. Um, so we didn't have to like convince people of this idea. People were already thinking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do I cash in on this? Uh, so we basically rode this wave that was happening. We didn't try to create the wave, which I think is actually a really important thing when you're starting. So you had this great wave. You went into the uh, Democratic National Convention that was in Denver. Is that right? That That's year? right. Yeah. Um, kind of what happens next? Because you kind of have this big bang. You've launched. You're live. You're three months of hard work. You're finally getting to see it. Now what? Right. There's a big bang and then there's silence. <laughs> It was a very successful launch in the sense that we got 800 properties. Actually, I'd say a couple hundred people stayed using the product, so we made a little bit of money. Uh, we were on the news, CNN International doing a video interview explaining what our company was about. I mean, it's really exciting um, way to launch your company. But a week later, we were no longer relevant to anybody. And you know that begins a period of about three or four months that despite really working hard on the product, um, none of our numbers were increasing. It didn't seem to matter. And it was a very discouraging time, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and this lasted until, until about January 2009 when we entered Y Combinator. How did you balance the work? Because I'm sure that, that all of you were working very, very hard during all these periods. Oh, certainly. I mean, there was plenty to do. So by, by no means was yeah. it just me building <laughs> stuff. You know, we've had a beautifully designed site from the beginning. And that's because mm -hmm. two of the three founders are designers. Um, so a lot of effort went into creating those designs, for sure, and thinking through what the user experience yeah. should be. It's not as simple as drawing a mock-up, but yeah. there's a lot of thought that goes in behind uh, what that should be like. And a lot of time is spent with a customer watching them use it yeah. uh, and collecting feedback. Um, th but there's other components to the business, too. Customer support, for example. Uh, Joe handled that for a long time, just on his cell phone. Um, Brian, in the early days, was writing checks, you know, <laughs> like handwriting checks, and we'd putting them in the mail. I mean, that's how people got paid for, for wow. many months. You know, learning about the market, trying to make investor decks, pitching investors. These were all things that uh, Joe or Brian were doing. Got it. Well, look, and I think a lot of people have, have talked about at the beginning doing the scalable things in unscalable ways. Is that something that you guys have kind of really, you know, thought through even as you've grown the company? Yeah, I mean, I think part of being an entrepreneur is, is being um, um, a, a Swiss Army knife, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to do whatever it takes. Um, and you have to be really versatile and agile. Um, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and get it done. Um, that's particularly relevant in the beginning. And you just have to move fast, too. And sometimes moving fast is uh, to not automate it. And you also learn the most when you're doing it yourself. And that's when you have these, these great ideas. So as you started to mention Y Combinator, and you, you kind of said like that became a big milestone for the company, you know, a lot of people talk about that as, as one of the great sort of accelerators to really go and join kind of in an early startup. Can you talk a little bit about how the experience was for you guys back in 2009? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So we had obviously at this point been working on it for about a year now. Um, and so what happened during Y Combinator that suddenly made us successful? And, um, you know, prior to that, we had been working really hard on this, 
but we weren't completely focused, to be honest. I was doing a little freelance on the side. Uh, Joe had another project he was working on. So there were some other things going on in our lives. I was actually, for part of this time, based in Boston. They were still oh. here in San Francisco. Um, so, you know, in retrospect, companies aren't successful unless you put 110% in. And at the end of 2008, we said to ourselves, you know, having gone one year without jobs, not having raised any money, uh, and basically not knowing how to grow our business, we're on the verge of quitting. And we said, before we can quit, we have to give it 110%. So when we give up, we know that we at least gave it our best. Um, but we wanted to set a deadline, right? We didn't want this to keep going on end endlessly. And so Y Combinator was a way to do that. <laughs> it's only a 13-week program. And we said, for 13 weeks, we're going to be completely focused. And at the end of the 13 weeks, we'll then ask that question, should we, should we stop now? Now, luckily, we never had to have that conversation. <laughs> I think what Y Combinator did for us was it got us incredibly focused uh, and regimented. So I came back from Boston to San Francisco. I moved in with the guys. So the three of us were living together. We were on the same schedule. We'd wake up at 8 AM. We'd go to bed at midnight. Uh, we'd cook meals together, we'd go to the gym, but otherwise we were working, you know, 14 hours a day or so. And we'd do that six or seven days a week. There's nothing else in our lives. You know, significant others were put on hold, everything. And, um, you know, that kind of pure focus is really powerful. Um, and that combined along with some advice that we really took to heart uh, is what started to propel our company. That's great. Um, what were some of those key advice points that, that you really took to heart from Y Combinator? The most important was to meet our users uh, and, and being encouraged to go to New York, which is where at the time we had the most users. And, and the most users really means like 20 or 30. Like it was really <laughs> modest numbers. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, it sounds obvious to meet your users, right? But it wasn't obvious that we should go to New York to do that. Like, you know, yeah, we didn't have any money. So <laughs> buying plane tickets for three people and doing that three or four times over um, wasn't obvious to us. But Paul Graham encouraged us to do that. Um, and he also encouraged us to, it's better to have 100 users that love you than 1,000 users that like you. Um, <laughs> and so nice. what that really means is you know, find your evangelists and build for them. Uh, and so we went to New York, and we, we basically created our evangelists. Uh, and we did that by, our hook was beforehand we would call them and would say, we were looking at your profile, we noticed that your photos were kind of dark or low resolution. Would you like a professional photographer to come by and, and take those pictures for you? And they said, they're curious, they said, sure, why not? Uh, so they get a knock on the door, and it was Joe or Brian uh, coming to shoot the photos, which is a little weird to them. Um, but they opened the door nonetheless. Uh, and so they took the pictures. Uh, but they used that opportunity to sit with them at the computer, give them a tutorial, get product feedback, and then also to invite them out later on for beer as a group. And over beer, they would tell them the story of the last year and really make these people root for us, you know, yeah. turn them into our evangelists. Um, by hearing our story. And the combination of those photos and turning those early adopters into actual evangelists was what um, caused the business to start to take off. And what would happen is the, they started getting bookings. Uh, the hosts would tell their friends. Their friends would come to the site. They would see the, the high quality bar that had been established. Yeah. They would look to emulate it. And meanwhile, people from around the world were coming to New York, having positive experiences going home to Paris, Berlin, wherever, and bringing the idea with them. And so oftentimes the guests would become hosts. And so we had this global cross-pollination effect. At some point you start hiring. You start hiring your first engineer to help you, your first customer support person. Can you talk about what it was like to get that very first person into the company and like what it took for you to convince them to join you and them to convince you they were the right people to hire? 
there were a lot of things that took a long time to do in the early days. Um, so fundraising, right? Like we didn't raise any professional money until about 14 months into the company. Um, hiring our first person didn't happen until the summer of 2009. This oh, wow. is a year and a half into the founding of the company. Um, I was the only engineer for 18 months. Um, by the time we hired our first engineer, we were making uh, uh, $15,000 a week in fees on 150000 in gross receipts per week. Wow, congrats. So it, it was a legitimate business at this point. Yeah. Before we hired anybody, the first thing we did was we came up with what are our core values? You know, like what kind of people are we looking for? Uh, and we really put a lot of thought into this. You know, it, it's one of those things that could have easily not been done because it like wasn't an urgent thing. Like, yeah. it, it wasn't. It didn't seem like a pressing problem. Yep. But uh, you know, we've always thought really holistically about what we're trying to do, and so we spent a lot of time coming up with our core values, spending a lot of time, and uh, then interviewing against that. And when you are a new company, I mean, there's, there's so many young companies around here. Yeah. Uh, it's so hard to differentiate yourself. So actually, you know, it takes many months to find someone who's willing, <laughs> willing and a good fit. We ended up hiring our first engineer out of the Y Combinator network, uh, which, which ended up really, really well. Trying to get hired as one of those first engineers at a company like Airbnb or first employees is a, is a great thing. So what advice would you give to them to think about how to find that company and you know, ask some of those key questions um, to kind of choose? Just be aware of what's going on and uh, I think don't limit yourself to the jobs page of any of these companies. I mean, uh, find, you know, figure out what you're interested in, what, what space, what you think is cool, and then proactively reach out to these companies. I mean, all these companies are hiring. Um, and so it's all about taking initiative uh, and coming into the conversation with a whole bunch of ideas and passion. I think the most important thing to us when hiring those initial people, and still today, is passion, right? And so people who came in the door full of ideas and full of excitement were very easy decisions to make versus people that we we're kind of having to educate about this new concept and be like, well, what is this? And they had never done it before. And you know, that, those folks didn't matriculate. What were some of the very hardest things for you um, to kind of learn as you were starting to kind of build a team around you? After Y Combinator, we, we raised 600,000 from Sequoia. Uh, this was around March 2009. And, and really, ever since then, it's, it's been us trying to catch up with the growth. Like, um, you know, we're really lucky that there's strong network effects and we had a lot of momentum. To support that, a lot needs to happen in terms of customer support. You know, for a while, it was just still Joe, like doing it on his <laughs> cell phone. Yep. And then we had to hire other people, um, but there, weren't, there wasn't adequate tooling yep. to allow um, a layperson to, to change reservations, you know, before, before you had to kind of go in the database and do <laughs> these things. So suddenly you have to build out a whole whole set of tooling to allow customer support agents and multiple of them uh, you know, manage, manage what's going on. So building out that operation was challenging and, and even today it's challenging. We have 400 people who work in support. Wow. And so wow. managing all those workflows, when you have 150,000 people staying every single night, I mean imagine at a hotel how busy the front desk would be if you had 150,000 people upstairs, right? <laughs> so this is Great. why we need about 400 folks working in this um, and it takes a lot of technology to support that and, and do that well. You know, in the early days of building a company, you optimize for speed, right? You want to do fast product iterations. Uh, but suddenly, as your, your site takes off, you need to optimize for stability, right? And, and something that can, can, is more scalable. And so going through that inflection point is an interesting challenge. Um, you know, I think we did it relatively well, um, although because I was kind of the one-man band early on, yeah. I could only build things out so much. Yeah. But when I 
did, I, I did it in a very modular way so that as we hired people, we could take um, certain aspects of the product, cleanly break it out, and then rebuild it in a more scalable way. So, you know, I think just trying to keep things orderly yeah. is, um, is really important. Um, but just know that it, it's, it's chaos when, yeah. when, you're, when you're going through hypergrowth. Well, and, and when did you notice that your job was starting to change? I was writing code every day up until I'd say about this early 2011, summer mm -hmm. of 2011. So that's about, let's see, two, three, three, three full years in, three and a half mm -hmm. years. Um, at that point, we had about 20 engineers. And at that point, there was so much else going on in the company. Uh, it was the beginning of our real international push where we were opening offices, we were doing press tours. Uh, it was the time when we raised uh, the 100 million round, yep. uh, which was a, obviously a big milestone, a big deal, um, took time. And, and so that's when kind of my responsibility as co-founder really became something other than just uh, being the engineer. And in that, at that point, I had 20 other people who could kind of do that. Um, and today, you know, I'm, I'm co-founder and CTO, but really it, it is co-founder that describes what I do. I, I travel a lot for business. Do talks like this. Do talks <laughs> like this. Um, you know, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made when you have about 800 people. So you try to empower others. As we talked about kind of the company and your roles shifted, when you talked at the very beginning about how the vision for Airbnb shifted. It started with the events and conferences, then it became, wait, it's just let someone else's house be more like a, ho a bookable hotel room. Kind of, how has that kept on shifting? I hear now people talk about Airbnb and hospitality. It, it seems so obvious in retrospect, but like there were a whole bunch of discrete moments where it's like our vision got expanded just a little bit more, <laughs> right? And so you know, it started with, with the Airbeds, and then for a while, you know, it was, it was Air Bed and Breakfast was the name, and, and for a while we required that you serve breakfast, which meant you could not rent your entire place. You could only rent an extra bedroom. And then, then a funny story is that Barry Manilow's drummer was an early user of Airbnb in New York. That's crazy. And he would go on tour, uh, and he wanted to rent his whole place when he was on tour. And so somehow we, I think we got connected through one of our trips to New York to him and heard his story, and we're like, well, maybe we should waive the breakfast requirement so he can rent his place while he's on tour, because he actually had a pretty cool apartment. So he was the first entire home <laughs> on our site, and that kind of expanded our thinking just a little bit. But even then, we said you couldn't charge more than, I think, $200 a night. Um, and that really limited the type of inventory that we had. I mean, we only had very, uh, very affordable, very cheap places. Yeah. And then we, we said, well, what, what if we increase that to $1,000 a night, and then eventually $10,000? And every time we did that, we started to see interesting things happen. We got some luxury properties. I remember, um, you know, I think there was like a, a when we went to $10,000 a night, there was some village in Europe or something that put themselves up for $10,000 wow. a night. So like, there's these really interesting things that started to happen as you started to remove the restrictions from the marketplace. And we started to see the tree houses and the boats. And um, we started to create explicit categories so that people could, uh, could kind of explore these different directions. Um, back then, in 2009, we called ourselves the eBay for space. Okay. And now it's, it's kind of funny because we're, you know, for many years now, there's been the Airbnb of, of X. Yeah. Uh, but back then, we were the eBay of space. Um, I'd say our vision has expanded yet again about a year or two ago. Um, you know, we're really thinking beyond just the accommodation um, to the entire trip. So how can we add value uh, throughout your trip? 
we think we're in a good position to do so because we're so connected to our guests from the discovery process through the booking to seeing the review at the end um, that if we can collect information from them, uh, maintain that repository and then give it to other guests, or if we can tap our host community, we just think there's a lot that we could crowdsource and deliver up, uh, particularly through mobile. Um, so as a company, our, that is our strategy to basically make people feel at home anywhere in the world throughout their trip. Well, that, that's, that's kind of a great sort of evolution of the vision. Um, but also, you started this as a website clearly back in 2008. Now we all have these phones. We're sitting in a wonderful Apple store. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you guys see your evolution to mobile and see Airbnb as something that you should really be experiencing more you know, on these devices versus just sitting in front of a computer? Yeah, so the original site was certainly, it was a website, and there was no mobile app for a long time. Um, and so we had to make that shift. And it, it's a, frankly, it's a hard one because, um, you know, in terms of engineering, it requires engineers with special training, uh, and they're in high demand. Uh, and so it took a while to attract this talent, and then we also started to retrain some of our own engineers to make yeah. this possible. I think the good news is we don't monetize by selling ads. And so for a lot of companies, it's been hard. As they move their traffic to mobile, they have less real estate to monetize. Um, for us, we actually think mobile is making the experience better for everybody. So when our hosts are on mobile, they respond faster to messages. They can accept inquiries. And when they respond faster, that's a better experience for all of our guests, regardless of whether they're on mobile or not. So actually, I think this is the tighter we can integrate the online and the offline worlds, which I think mobile allows us to do, the better our product is going to work. So we see mobile as a real big enabler of the marketplace. Um, as well as a convenience for the traveler, right? So on your trip, um, everyone has their phone with them. So how can we deliver all the information and the conveniences that you might need through your phone? Can you tell us, I guess, some of the stories about some of the really fun properties that have gotten listed on Airbnb? I always think that's just great color when we're hearing the Airbnb story. Yeah, well, my favorite that I've stayed at is a, uh, a place in Bali, Indonesia. Uh, and it's a four-story bamboo, almost like a treehouse. Um, although I think it's freestanding, but everything in it is bamboo. Uh, it has a spiral staircase up the middle. Um, the, uh, the light switch is made out of bamboo. Everything is bamboo. It was made by a, an artist who wanted to explore um, kind of taking bamboo to the extreme and building these massive structures. And there's eight of these really special homes. And it's in the middle of the jungle. It's open air on the sides. Uh, it's, there's nothing else like it in the world. I mean, it's totally unique, one of a kind. Um, but beyond that, some of our most popular properties are these, these novel ones. Um, the tree houses in general have been incredibly popular. And there's, there's one nearby here in Burlingame. Uh, there's another one two hours south down in like Monterey Bay. Uh, these places have hosted sometimes over 1,000 people wow. over the last few years. Um, and it just really, I think, captures people's imaginations. Like, I never considered this a possibility in my life. So people, they want to try it, even if only for a night. So it sounds like Airbnb, the place for tree houses. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, other examples too, castles. We have 600 castles wow. across Europe. Um, that's really Air cool. Castles. I mean, it's not, maybe it, this doesn't make sense as like a couple or something to rent a castle, but uh, for a corporate retreat or some kind of like um, baby shower or something, yeah. uh, these could be great for events. Look, it's, it's a pretty amazing journey from a room to castles and tree houses. Um, but clearly it hasn't all been sort of roses and and you know sparkles like can you talk about some of the tougher parts of the journey along the way some of the 
the crises you faced and really kind of how, how that impacted you guys as a team? I mean, there's certainly been lots of things. Yeah. And I, I, the generalization I would make is, you know, when you're being really successful, um, it, it's also, you know, people want to tell the other story too. Yeah. I, they don't just always want to tell the success story. They want to like pick at the things that say, oh, you're successful, but look at this other thing. Yeah. Like, you know, how, how dare they be successful when something else is going on? Um, and, and make it look like you are trying to ignore this other thing that's okay. happening, which is, which is not the case. Um, you know, some of the challenges we've had is certainly, um, you know, this is all built on trust, yeah. right? And with 150,000 people staying per night, we have done a remarkable job of upholding the trust, but at the same time, at that scale, once in a while, things do happen. Yeah. But whenever something happens, it always ends up in the headlines, and that's something that we have to uh, you know, respond to, and it's something that we're always responding to, um, but you know, it becomes a little bit of a kind of a crisis, right, that you have to, to manage and respond to uh, in a public way, as well as some of the regulatory challenges that are very well known here in San Francisco, mm -hmm. but you know, this is something that we're in 40,000 different cities. So we're having conversations in dozens of cities simultaneously, trying to make progress on an issue in, in an environment where, you know, progress takes place over the span of years. It's not like a startup where you're iterating every week and, uh, you know, coming out with uh, new ideas and, and making progress. It's, you know, politics moves slowly, um, and that has been challenging to navigate, um, although, Again, I think we have a lot of things that we can contribute. I think one of the things we've realized is that you have to go out there proactively and tell your story. Um, you have to get out in front of it and say, listen, we acknowledge these issues. We have a whole bunch of ideas that we'd like to offer up, um, but let's start a conversation um, and um, bring everybody to the table, as opposed to having it be polarized, where you have one, set, one side kind of throwing you under the bus, yep. and you're there trying to respond to that. So kind of you know, the, the last question, and then we'll open it up to the audience for a couple, you know, sort of, you know, you've had this in, incredible journey. You've started with a couple guys renting out a room to, you know, now being the center of the shared economy and collaborative consumption and defining the future of hospitality. What did, what's kind of the best advice you give to the next entrepreneurs who are, you know, have these great ideas and are passionate and want to try to follow in your footsteps? It's certainly one, one step at a time. Like, we didn't start this thinking we'd do any of these things. Um, and, you know, frankly, sometimes I'm surprised at how far we've come, right? Um, I don't often take time to reflect on, on what we've done. It's just every day I'm, I'm super focused at the task at hand. And it's kind of like hiking up a mountain, right? You kind of look at one step in front of the other. And then every once in a while you turn around and you realize kind of how, how far you've come. Um, so I would just say, you have to stay focused and you have to pace yourself. And I think that's what we learned in the early days yeah. was that it wasn't until we focused 110% that we really started to make progress. Um, and it always takes a while. Yeah. So I see so many people quit after six, nine months um, because they thought they would be successful sooner. Uh, so you really have to budget for a lot more than that. I think people forget like Airbnb started, as Nate said, in 2008 at the beginning. And it wasn't until 2009 that it really got going. So. Uh, you and know, that's and, still and relatively and short compared <laughs> to, I mean, other stories like years and years, more years, yeah. yeah. And so, so really just being patient. Um, so I'd like to take a minute and, and say thanks to Nate for uh, a great talk today. And then we're going to open it up for some uh, audience questions if people have any questions. Oh, hi. Um, well, uh, how to improve the communication effective? Because, well, uh, I've realized some, some of the horses, they are very... Um, response um, so slowly because I'm booking right. 
uh, booking the rooms right now. So I right think what now, you're saying so. is that uh, how do we uphold that the hosts are really responsive uh, to the messages and maintain the kind of the quality of interaction? Um, yeah, it, it's a challenge, right? We have 600,000 hosts. These are people. Um, we don't obviously control them. Yeah. Um, it's through the marketplace that we try to make sure that the best people, the people who are most responsive um, and provide the best experiences are, are the ones that rise to the top. And those who are less responsive, we try to create a feedback loop so that they can see that they're being less responsive, be kind of um, uh, encouraged to improve that. But if they don't, ultimately, they become lower in search results and ultimately removed from the marketplace. So by setting up an incentive system, that's how we kind of um, actively manage the marketplace. But it's a real challenge. It's, it's not like a hotel where you can um, you know, pass down the memorandum and say, you know, this is how we're going to operate tomorrow. That's a great question. Question here in the back. What would be some of the sort of key learnings and experiences that you would pass on um, that you took out of your engagement and experience with your various venture capital partners as you went through the, the fundraising rounds? So key learnings around fundraising. Yeah, key, key learnings out of the approach, preparation, uh, just things that stand out that would be worthwhile passing on to others considering the process. Yeah. So when we've raised money, it's always been a very deliberate process. Um, it, well, except for maybe the first year where we failed to raise money, but maybe that also reinforces the lesson. Um, so we're fortunate enough that when we have raised money, we've always been in a position of strength after that first year. Um, and we've thought to ourselves, you know, ever since basically raising money from Sequoia, we realized, like, let's limit ourselves to only the, the best investors out there. Uh, because investors are, a, you know, a long-term member of your company, and they have certain rights. And so just like I said, put a lot of thought into who your co-founders are, I would say put a lot of thought into who your investors are. We've looked for investors that can offer um, what's called a value add. So guys that have operational experience that would take the time to meet with us every week or every two weeks uh, for breakfast. And we could tell them, here's what we're going through. And, and them, having been entrepreneurs at one point or another, uh, could, could offer feedback, not in a controlling way, but just in, a, in a, you know, a very helpful way. When you start a process, I mean, you run it like a process, right? So you, you kind of figure out who are the people you want to talk to, and you, you kind of do everything in sync. Um, you, you have to kind of answer the question, why now? Right? You have to create a little bit of urgency around it. So, what that urgency is can vary uh, depending on the circumstance. I mean, all, all the stuff that you read in the business books, I mean, you have to have a big vision. It has to be a, a, a big market. You know, there's this funny story. In the early days, in 2008, we, we pitched an investor, and um, there was a slide on the business model, and it said we were going to make $200 million in the first three years. <laughs> and I did some mental math, and I said, there's no way we're going to make $200 million. We'd have to do like 30,000 transactions a day, bookings. And I'm like, there's no way that's realistic in three years. So I said, why don't we make the 200 million 20 million? That will at least be realistic and that they won't think we're crazy. And so the next day when he showed the slide, Brian had changed it to 2 billion. <laughs> and I said, Brian, why did you do that? And he had talked to one of our advisors who said that investors don't want M's, they want B's, baby. <laughs> um, you know what? And that's true. Investors want big markets. They, they want the billion dollar opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, we hadn't painted the picture of how we were going to get to that billion dollar opportunity. <laughs> Um, but I still think it's a good lesson. Uh, well, look, as, uh, this has been a, a great talk tonight. As proud investors in Airbnb, uh, I can only say, like, I'd echo a lot of what Nate said. Having a really big vision, having 
the, the focus to just take it step by step and be incredibly deliberate about it, being deliberate about everything you do, whether it's customer service or fundraising or hiring. Um, so I just, I think now is a great time to give a big round of applause and thank you to Nate for such a great talk today. Thanks for coming this morning.